I want to tell you about my trips to Walmart. Um, many, you may not know this, and maybe, maybe I'm the only one that looks at it like this, and, and I'm about to confess, so, you know, it's supposed to be good for the soul. I don't like going to Walmart. I mean, I really don't. If there's anywhere else I can go besides Walmart, I go. I tell Darlene sometimes I'd rather take a beating than go to Walmart. I just don't, I don't like going to Walmart. Uh, but sometimes there can be a little silver lining. Uh, if you're ever, I don't know, not feeling that great about yourself, and you know, you just maybe your maybe your self confidence is down a little bit. If you wait. I mean, it's usually best to go uh, on the weekends late at night. But if you go to Walmart and just, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes walking up and down the aisles, just looking around, looking at people, you can feel better about yourself. I mean, you can, just one trip. It got so bad that, uh, I don't know who who created this, but... There's actually a website called peopleofwalmart.com. Now, if you have never gone to that website, don't. Because I don't want anybody to leave here and say, the preacher told us to go look at people of Walmart. So I, don't do that, okay? Just save yourself from doing that. Uh, it's, it will not be edifying, I promise you. But here's the, there's only one problem with that. And, and I'll confess because I, I've, had that, I've had those thoughts. At Walmart, so let me just go ahead and get that out there and confess. Here's the problem with that. That's sin. It's it's funny, but it's sin. Uh, because here's what here's what that is. A, that's a picture of. I'll just use myself because I I have done that. It's a picture of me judging people. Strictly on their appearance. It's a picture of, of the, the sin and the, the wickedness that's in my heart that would cause me. And see, here's why I tell that story. Because when I say that, I, judging by the reaction, I, I suspect I'm not the only one. But, but here's the thing. This, this scripture this week brought that particular story into specific focus in my mind and reminded me, Mike, that's really wrong because I, I, am, I am judging, qualifying, dis- distinguishing people based not on anything of their character, not on anything I know about them because I don't know them. It's strictly on appearance. Now, keep that in mind, because there's a reason why there's a cliche that says don't judge a book by its cover. Clichés are there because they're true. So, with that in mind, let's turn our attention to James chapter 2. And here's what James was inspired to write by the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 1, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ 
with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes to your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the law according to the Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law that stumbles in one point he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment father i pray today by your holy spirit that you would speak clearly to our hearts for the glory of christ amen this is a this is kind of a, a passage this is one of those that just um i don't know it, to, to me it, it it punishes me a bit because it brings to mind parts of my character that are not pleasant, parts of my character that I just assume no one else see or experience, because I realize when I read a passage like this and then apply it to myself, I realize I'm a sinner. Not that I didn't know that before, it just becomes more evident. It, it's a reminder. I'm a sinner, and I'm not immune from having sinful thoughts and attitudes, just as None of you are immune. So two points to this message today. There's two paragraphs in this section. The first seven verses is a paragraph, and verses 8 through 13 is the second paragraph in this particular passage. And here's the outline for today. Number one, do not discriminate because it's wrong. Simple enough, right? But number two, do not discriminate because it's unloving. It's wrong and it's unloving. Those are the two things we're going to look at. So let's look at the first seven verses as a section here as we kind of break this passage down. There's a primary command, a primary example, and then a primary judgment to start off with just in the first four verses. The primary command is found in verse 1. Do not hold your faith in Christ with personal favoritism. So what this says to us is discrimination against people is inconsistent with true faith in God. So if we want to claim we're Christians, we follow Jesus, we have true faith in God, discrimination is inconsistent with that statement. So if we want to have, we can't have one 
and the other at the same time. So if we want to say, I am a true follower of Jesus, then if I say that, then I can't turn around and then have favoritism or discrimination in my attitude or in my heart. Discrimination that is exhibited in the Christian community in particular is another evidence of a wavering, divided attitude toward God. And see, here's the the issue with that. If we're going to have consistently Christian conduct, then that means we have to have a consistently Christian heart and mind. Because the attitudes and the actions and the words that come out of us flow from our hearts. Jesus said, out of the overflow of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. So, whatever comes out of us, particularly in stressful situations when we don't have time to use our filters, that's typically what's really in our hearts. So that's a scary thought. So when we get pressed, whatever comes out is typically just a reflection of who we are. Whether or not we want to accept that, that's really irrelevant because whatever... You know, when the words come out, you can't grab hold of them and put them back in. They're out there. See? So, so it's a reflection. Of, we want to be consistently Christian. If indeed we are Christian, we want to actually act that way, right? I mean, if you say you're a Christian, don't you want to think and act and be like a Christian? That seems logical. So here's the example that... James gives us, and verses 2 through 4 is actually one long sentence, but it serves as a good example or illustration. He says, two men come into your assembly. One's dressed nicely, and he gives examples with a gold ring, fine clothes. One's dressed poorly with dirty clothes. And understand, too, the, the association here, because he uses the descriptive term, dirty clothes, but then calls this person a poor man. So then what happens when these two individuals come into your assembly, James says, here's how you respond to those people. You pay special attention to one who's dressed nicely, and they get, a prefer, they get preferred seating. And then you look at the poor man, it says in verse 3, oh, you stand over there, or you sit down by my footstool. So you give them the least favorable spot, strictly based on their appearance. And then verse 4 kind of gives us the judgment of this example. You have made a question. It's really rhetorical. It's, it's, it's given that it's a positive answer. When he says, have you not made distinctions? What he's saying is, you've made distinctions. He, he's making a statement. You have made distinctions among yourselves. In other words, you've distinguished between these two individuals simply based on your discernment of how they're dressed. You know what I thought about doing? I've, I've seen this done before. I haven't personally done it. I've read about it. But um, I thought about this week, knowing I was going to be preaching this passage, I thought about calling one of my friends from Lexington that none of you knows and doing a little social experiment and just letting them, let, you know, hey, let's go down to the... Uh, Let's go down to Goodwill and get 
just get some, you know, get the, the worst looking clothes you can find and dress. And in about 11.05, come through the back doors and, and find a seat. Let's just see what happens. Aren't y'all glad I didn't do that? I don't know, I mean, I don't know what would have happened. But I, just thinking about it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> because that's, that's how much sin's in my heart. Just thinking about if that was done to me, how would I respond? Would I be all Christian about it? Would I respond how Jesus would want me to? I'd love to say yes. I'd love to think yes, I would, I would do well on that test. But I don't know. I don't know. But that's what happened here. That's the example that James has given these believers He's saying if you treat this man one way and this man another way just because they're dressed a little differently, you've made distinctions among yourselves. And he says in verse 4, you've become judges with evil motives. So not only this is who you are, but this is your motivation behind it. You're judging someone strictly by how they look. Now, this is not the first time that's happened because there's a story in the Old Testament that I'm going to tell you about that's very similar to this. And most of you will probably find this somewhat familiar because back in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel is God's prophet. Now, now, this is God's man. And God told him in 1 Samuel 16, he said, Samuel, go to Bethlehem. Go to a man named Jesse. And I want you, he's got a bunch of sons. And I want you to anoint the next king. So Samuel says, okay, uh, I'll, I'll go down there. He says, um, you'll invite Jesse to a sacrifice. This is 1 Samuel 16, verse 3. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to just read it to you. You can write it down if you want to look later. 1 Samuel 16, the first, um, first 13 verses or so. So Samuel goes and, and does what God tells him to do. He invites Jesse to this sacrifice, and it says, I'll show you what you'll sh- you shall do. You'll anoint for me the one that I designate to you. That's God saying, I'm going to point him out to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said. He went to Bethlehem, and uh, he, he said, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And when they entered, verse 6 says, Here comes one of Jesse's older sons. And boy, he's sharp. Now, he's Mr. GQ. He's about 6'2". Broad shoulders, you know, that jawline like a marine. You know, he comes in looking all tough. And here's what Samuel says. He looked at Eliab and thought, well, surely the Lord's anointed is among us. He, he looks at him and that, that, that's what he says. Well, this has got to be the one right here. And here's the, the key verse. Verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or... At the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. Shows you, this is God's man. Shows you how much God's man knew at that point. Then he says, For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
Now, that's, that's a tough word. Because you know when this was written? Thousands of years ago. James wrote his sermon here that we're studying in the first century, in the, in the, around 60, the early 60s A.D. This was thousands of years before that. And you, and you hear what God said? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Folks, there has nothing changed about humanity. Nothing. Still bad. What I'm trying to say, still bad, still in need of Christ. Then the story goes on. Jesse called Abinadab, made him pass before Samuel, and he said, "The Lord's not chosen this one either." And then son after son, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Seven of his sons passed before Samuel. And verse ten says, Samuel said to Jesse, "The Lord has not chosen these." And then in verse eleven, almost the end of the story, Samuel says to Jesse. Are these all of them? Are these all the sons you got? And he said, well, there's my youngest boy is over here, but he's out there tending the sheep. You don't, you don't need to bother with him. Do you see what just happened? Even his own daddy said, no, it can't be him. His own daddy said, it can't be him. He's out, that's the youngest one. He's out there with the sheep. Samuel said, go get him. Will not sit down till he comes. So verse 12 says he sent, brought him in. He says he was ruddy. I don't know what ruddy means, but I guess it's a compliment. With beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, now this, the Lord said, not Samuel. The Lord said, arise and anoint him for this is he. His name was David. Anybody remember David? The king? See, we might just see a little shepherd boy. But that was God's king because man looks at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. That's, that's an Old Testament example that predates our text by thousands of years. And the attitude is still in question even in, and this, is in the, this is in the church sitting in the world. This is in the church. James is writing to believers. And he says, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with personal favoritism. It's not consistent. It's not consistent. Paul, the Apostle Paul, would even write almost the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. And he's telling the church... Consider your calling. In other words, remember when Jesus called you. Remember when you got saved. And he says these words. He says, There were not many wise according to the world, not many mighty, not many noble. But then the key verse in verse 27, he says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God see it doesn't matter who we are what we can do what talents we have abilities we have we don't get to brag you know why because all that stuff comes from Jesus so if we're going to brag about something, we need to point to Jesus. 
And by the way, when we leave a church gathering, you know what we ought not to ever say? Something like, well, I really like that song we sang today. Or, yeah, that, that sermon was, that was half decent. It was okay. That was pretty decent. Or, uh, man, I really enjoyed seeing so-and-so today. Glad I got to see them. You know what we ought to be saying? Man, what an amazing Savior we have. What a glorious Christ we serve. See, that's the, that's the focus of the community of God when we get together. Didn't we come here to seek, seek the face of the Lord? Isn't that the purpose of our gathering? So, so James is just reminding us, don't make distinctions among yourselves. Don't hold your faith with personal favoritism. Verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, didn't God choose the poor? This, just like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, didn't God choose the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? And then he closes out this first section by saying, You've dishonored the poor man. So when the two men came in, one rich, one poor, and you treat the rich man with preference and the poor man you treat poorly... He says, you've dishonored the poor man. And then here's the ironic thing. Look what he says at the end of verse 6 and then end of verse 7. He says, isn't it the rich who are persecuting you, who oppress you? Isn't it the rich who are dragging you into court? The rich who are blaspheming the fair name of, that you were called by? So, so what, he's, what James is saying is, you're dishonoring the one who would be honestly uh, your friend. You're, you're dishonoring the one who you might be cared for them. You would care for them, they would care for you. The, the rich, the, the one that you're giving all the flattery to and the preference to, they're the very ones who don't care anything about you, who treat you terribly. It's almost like, well, I'm going to, if I ever meet a celebrity, I'm a, man, I'm going to be really nice to them. They don't know my name. They don't care about me. I'm nothing to them. But boy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just heap up the praise on them. Why? Why would I do that? Why? And that's what James is pointing out here. You, you give all this good treatment to the one who mistreats you. And here's the poor man, humble, kind, caring, just want to come in and, and worship the Lord. And that's the one you treat poorly. It's inconsistent. It's not right. It makes no sense. But the last phrase there in verse 7 is really instructive because the third thing that James says the rich typically do, you see that word? He says they blaspheme. They blaspheme the name of Christ. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Well, if you want to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, it's certainly not being best buddies with somebody who's blaspheming the name by which you were called. That's not consistent with the Christian faith. It's not consistent. 
Discrimination is wrong. We just don't do it, okay? Do not discriminate. It's wrong. Secondly, do not discriminate. It's unloving. Look at verse 8. James will tell us, he'll reference the great commandment, the second half of the great commandment, and basically he'll make this point. Loving your neighbor is the complete opposite of discrimination and personal favoritism. You remember Mark chapter 12, the great commandment? Teacher, what, what is the greatest commandment? And you remember what Jesus says, Mark 12, verses 30 and 31? He said, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind, with all your strength. And then he says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Greatest command. And then he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these commandments. These two, you love God with everything you got, you love your neighbor and things will follow in line after that. So love for the neighbor that was extended by Jesus to all people, including those different from us, that kind of love requires that poor and poorly dressed people be given as much respect and attention as anyone who's well-dressed or prominent. Because that would demonstrate that we're not judging based on appearance which is a, that is a distinctly Christian characteristic, is to not judge by appearance. See, showing partiality is sin. And you see that in the following verses. Verse 9, if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. Because James referenced in verse 8 the royal law. You know why it's royal law? Because Jesus Christ is royal. You know why? Because he's the king. And it's his law that tells us not to discriminate and show personal favoritism. Therefore, we follow that law, love your neighbor as yourself, then we're doing well. But if we don't, then we're not doing well. See, the reverse is also true. Not only are we not doing well, James says in verse 9, we're committing sin, convicted by the law. And then he points out, there's just one lawgiver, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's one thing he, he points out that maybe we don't realize all the time. Sometimes we like to be selective. Well, yeah, I missed that one pretty bad, but I got all these other ones right. See, it's not a test like in school where you can make an A even if you miss a couple. You know, if you've got 100 questions on a test and you get 95 of them right, you still get an A but you still missed five questions. Well, the law of God doesn't operate like that. See, the law of God is an all-or-nothing type of proposition, which makes it real tough because, see, James points out here that the same God that said don't commit adultery is the same God that said don't murder. But if you do one and don't do the other one, guess what? You're still guilty. You know what this reminds us of? The whole Old Testament. Why do you think that the people of God had to do so many sacrifices and things just so, had to do things just a certain way, and you had the high priest had to go in there to the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and had to, had to wash and clean and get just right so he could be holy and blameless before God, and only that one man could go in there and only once a year make the sacrifice for the sin of the people, sprinkle the blood on the altar, sprinkle the blood on the, the scapegoat that it ran out into the wilderness, and... Everything had to be just so particular 
in order to relate to God and receive forgiveness from God. But all that was temporary. It was temporary because it had one purpose. You know what the purpose was? To show us how we couldn't do it. That's the whole purpose of all this law, of all these relations, all these different things that tell us, hey, you can't be good enough. You can't make it to heaven on your own. You need a mediator. You need someone to take your place that can do it. And guess who that is? Jesus Christ came to this earth taking on the form of a human being. He lived a life free from sin, never sinned. Then he willingly laid down his life for you and me. He took our place. He died in our place for our sins on a cross And then he rose victoriously on the third day. He came out of the grave and he ascended to heaven. And he sits right now at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for you and me. That means right now Jesus Christ is in heaven praying for us. That's the gospel. And it's the truth. Which means that's the only way any of us has hope for forgiveness and eternal life. Only through Jesus Christ. So... James points out to us, by the way, if you try to keep the whole law but you stumble at one point, verse 10, you're guilty of all of it. And then he gives that example about adultery versus murder versus, you know, fill in the blank with any two sins. You commit one and not the other, you're still a transgressor of the law. So the point is, he's not saying that anybody can keep the whole law. He's just saying, well, let's just say, for example, what if somebody could keep the law? But if they miss one? They make a 99 out of 100 on that test. Guess what? They fail. It's pass-fail. It's not A, B, C, D. I don't know why they skip E. F. It's pass-fail. You miss one, you're out. But guess what? I got news. Jesus didn't miss any. He got 100 on that test. He got 100. Sinless sinless, substitutionary sacrifice. That's who Jesus is. So James tells us in verse 12, if that's the truth, if the command is do not hold your faith with favoritism, do not discriminate, there's no place for that in the Christian life. That's inconsistent with true faith in Jesus. If that's the command, then what are we supposed to do, James? Verse 12, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, what's that mean exactly? What's the law of liberty? It's the gospel. Because, see, the the law of liberty, the truth of Jesus Christ, brings liberty. It brings freedom to the sinner who was enslaved by sin and now is set free. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 8? Verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has what? Set you free from the law of sin and death. It's the law of liberty. You've been freed from sin. So James says, then you speak and you act accordingly as one who will be judged by that law, by the gospel, the gospel truth. And the interesting thing about those words, when you read verse 12, that command, the word speak and the word act, 
The Greek tense of those words is stressing that it's a continuing nature of these actions. So you could read it, if you want to read it literally, it'd be like saying, be constantly speaking and always be acting this way. It's a continual action. Always, constantly. This is how we need to conduct ourselves. And the final verse, verse 13. If you don't show mercy, then nobody's going to show mercy to you. Now I want you to play real, pay real close attention to the very last phrase in verse 13. Last verse, last four words. You see it? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now it's very rare, and we'll just we'll close this up right here. It's it's really rare that at the very end of a paragraph, the very end of a passage of scripture, we're given a, a command or, or not a command really, it's a statement of truth that summarizes the whole teaching. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know what that means? It's not God's mercy toward us that he's talking about. It's our mercy toward others. Because if you read in verse 12, we're supposed to be constantly speaking and always acting as those who are going to be judged by the law of liberty. And just before that, or after that I should say, verse 13, if you show mercy, then you will be shown mercy. If you do not show mercy, you will not be shown mercy. And, and he says very, very uh, distinctly in verse 13 that judgment will be without mercy for those who have shown no mercy. So you'll be judged. But that last phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment. How do we avoid judgment? We're merciful. Why are we merciful? Because Christ was merciful. How does that work exactly? Does it mean that it's like a salvation by works, that we have to do a certain thing in order to be saved? No, that's not what it's saying. What James is pointing out is, if you are saved, you will show mercy. You see that? Because personal favoritism in our faith is inconsistent with true faith. Therefore, what he's pointing out is not that you must, you have to check this box in order to be right with God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying because you are right with God, you will always strive to show mercy. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy in your life, extended to others because of Christ in you, is what demonstrates that you're heading for a different judgment. You're going to be judged as a follower of Jesus Christ by this law of liberty, this law that has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's great freedom in belonging to Christ. And with that union comes a new direction, a new set of characteristics, a new set of moral direction, a new way of living. That's why in Romans 8.1, Paul can say there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's because the law has set you free. The law of Christ 
has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's the gospel. It's Jesus that's done. So when we conclude this study and we look at this statement, mercy triumphs over judgment, we come to this one conclusion. If we truly belong to Jesus, then our behavior should constantly demonstrate that we belong to Jesus. We need to stop giving in to this temptation to discriminate against other people based on their appearance or based on anything for that matter. We just don't do that. It's not consistent with belonging to Jesus. So for me, maybe that means I really do have a good, solid, biblical reason for never, ever going to Walmart again, which would be fine with me. For you, maybe that looks a different way on a practical extension. But the point is this. We need Jesus to get this done. Because Jesus is the one who works this attitude into us. It's not, you, you remember, I, mean, I read from 1 Samuel. That's, that's way back in the Old Testament. And, and James is first century. So you, you see, the human condition hadn't changed. We're all still struggling with some stuff they were struggling with way back. Way back when. Which just highlights this truth. We need Jesus. Every one of us, we need Jesus. Let's pray.